Thank you very much. All right, Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, and we will, we're down there to verse 22. We're going to read down 22 through verse number 35. It says, then it, then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greetings unto the brethren uh, which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia. Uh, excuse me. For as much as we have heard there's, uh, that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, Ye must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent, therefore, Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same thing, uh, same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. They abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well, fare ye well. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle. Which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. And Judas and Silas, being prophets also themselves, exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. And after they had tarried their space, they were let go in peace from the brethren unto the apostles. Notwithstanding, it pleased Silas to abide there still. Paul and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, and with many others also. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I certainly do love you and ask for your blessing upon the service today. Lord, I pray that you be glorified and honored. Help me to stay true to your word. Father, I pray that your, your spirit, your word would have free course and would work on our hearts. That, Lord, for those who have been converted, the believers, Lord, I pray it would strengthen us and draw us closer to you. Lord, that your spirit would work on each heart. You know the needs that are present and, and how you can use this. So, Lord, I pray that your word would be a help. Lord, for those who are present who have never truly been converted, Lord, I do pray for that conviction and that drawing that perhaps even this morning they would repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you be glorified. I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. We're coming to the conclusion of this council, and really chapter 15, we'll finish it up next week. Next week, it'll, well, actually, probably won't be back in the book of Acts, I don't think, till January. I'll, I'll be heading into some Christmas messages dealing with the Lord's birth starting next Sunday. Um, but once we get back into it in January, it's a good, good time to cut it off because it's going to go into the second missionary journey. Uh, we'll, we'll be diving into that. And, but Acts chapter 15 has been an incredibly important chapter. It is settling the issue of what must I do to be saved. 
um, of what salvation entails. As we know, when the chapter started off, we had Paul returning from his first missionary journey, rejoicing at all that had taken place in Galatia and, and all that God had did and the troubles and trials that they had experienced. Well, they get back there, and of course, Judaizers come in. Uh, Peter is present, by the way. And Judaizers come in, and the Judaizers begin teaching them that you must be circumcised and follow the law of Moses to truly be converted. In other words, they wanted them to become a Jew first before they can actually become a Christian. It's sort of in that order what they wanted to see. And it caused great confusion. It troubled them, as we're going to see. It led to distress. So uh, Paul gets into a dispute with these men, and, it, and they realize we need to get with the apostles in this. So they, all, they head off to the church at Jerusalem. And so they head there. And, and that's what this chapter dealt with, that council. The first person that we have speaking is Peter. Peter needed to speak. Uh, Peter had caused some of the confusion by his actions when he was at Antioch, and Paul had to rebuke him to his face. And so Peter speaks, and, I mean, he just nails it. We are saved by grace, through faith, that is it. Circumcision is not needed. He tells us, in the fact is, the law never, never saved us. It certainly can't save them. And, and so... Uh, they hear Peter's response to the discussion. And secondly, who speaks is Paul. Paul, Peter dealt with the past. Peter went to what happened with Cornelius, if you remember. That's how he dealt. Listen, I was there with Cornelius. I led the first Gentile to the Lord. There was no mention of circumcision. There was no mention of following the law. They were saved by faith. That's what took place, and they were really saved. There was no question about it. Then Paul speaks what's currently happening, what God's been doing with the Gentiles, and how God's been showing his blessing with miracles and wonders that were taking place. And then thirdly, where we spent the last couple of weeks was with James, who is speaking. This would be the half-brother of the Lord, who is now the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. And so James speaks, the same one who wrote the epistle, James. And James speaks... And first he does, he uses, the Lord gives him great wisdom because what he does is the first part of, his, uh, of, of him addressing the churches, he dealt with the comfort. I mean, these are all men of Israel. He said, listen, the Lord's not done with us. He said, listen, the kingdom's still coming. That's still going to take place. Yes, Gentiles are being saved right now, but the kingdom's still coming. The Messiah will sit on the throne of David. And he actually, we got into that, how he lays out a premillennial position right there in Scripture perfectly. And to encourage him that God's not done with us. And then he goes on to give instructions unto the Gentiles. Uh, two of them basically were uh, uh, related to morality. Uh, abstain from fornication, of course. And we dove into that and how that was such a part of the, the pagan religions of the day and how that needed to be said. And, of course, idolatry. And with that, he got into the, the meats that have been offered unto the idols and blood and things strangled. And so we dove into that. And, and the biblical principle there that was so neat that James understood this. James understood, okay, we are going to have churches in existence like that in Antioch. Where we have a mix of those who are Jewish and those who are Gentiles. They've got to get along. If they're going to do anything, there has to be unity. We don't, want, uh, we don't want splits to happen and divisions to happen and two different churches to happen. We're one in Christ. And so, uh, and so we dove into that, how even in things you have liberty in, if, if your liberty is going to cause somebody to stumble, you don't do it. You don't do it. You put the person above that. And so we dove into that last week. And now, today is pretty much a review of what took place. When I first started reading this and, and going through that, first I thought, you know, I wonder if I should have just included these verses with what went on. It's, it, it is primarily review. 
Um, but then I realized, no, uh, what I need to focus on is exactly what this text drives at. That is the state of the Gentile believers bef- uh, uh, when Paul and Barnabas left Antioch for Jerusalem and when they come back and when they hear the change that occurs in them. And that's what we're going to be looking at. And so it's, it certainly is an important text that we're going to be looking at because these believers, the, it said in verse 19 as well as later in our verses, two different words that they were troubled. But now we also see that they are comforted. We have, we have a word that, that uh, here in our text that lets us know there's things that were basically stolen from them that are now returned, and we'll see that. They go, in other words, from doubt to certainty. The doubt that the false doctrine had created had caused a, a, a measure of uncertainty. It troubled them, subverting their souls. And now, the, now there's such joy, there's such comfort. Now their certainty is now back. It can be a horrible thing not knowing the certainty of your salvation. It can be so troubling when doubts arise, am I saved or am I not? That's the condition that these Gentile believers were in. They were genuinely doubting. They didn't know. They thought they had it. They thought it was certain. They were rejoicing in it. But then false doctrine comes in. And now they were troubled. They were questioning. They had lost that assurance. So let's go over this text as to what takes place. And we're going to dive into this. After James finishes speaking, the leadership of the, and the entire church, under the direction of the Holy Ghost, God himself, decides to send back with Paul uh, um, and Barnabas, two men. There's going to be a lot of wisdom in that. They're going to send back Silas and Judas. There's not much known, uh, uh, um, there, there's not much mo- known about the Judas. Some say he is the, the brother of Acts 1. Uh, what was his name? Joseph, who was uh, up for nomination to take the place of Judas Iscariot. But we don't know that. that. That's just pure speculation. Silas, I spent time talking about actually last week. He will be accompanying Paul on his second missionary journey. But it says that they were chief men. They were in leadership at the church at Jerusalem. We know from our text here that they were preachers there. They taught there. They preached in that church. And the word that they used for chief here is interesting. It's a military term actually meaning commander. In other words, these guys had authority in that church at Jerusalem as well. So they send some key men. They just don't send average men. And that, there's a lot of wisdom in that. When, when Paul and Barnabas show up, and by the way, at this time, we haven't got into this yet because Acts hasn't revealed it, but we know from other portions of Scripture, there's already Judaizers that probably left Antioch and went into Galatia to the churches where Paul was just at and now subverting their souls, now causing more doubt among them. And, and trying to get them to add legalism into salvation. <clears throat> and so, uh, but it's going to be important. So when they do get back, so that the Judaizers just can't say, well, that's just Paul and Barnabas. What did you expect them to say? But they come with key men from the church who are going to say, yes, this is exactly what took place. And so they decide, it's the very first time we see it in the New Testament, that they're going to send an epistle, a letter, a written letter. They're going to tell them this has come from the hand of the apostles. They're saying, listen, and it's clear. We understand that men that came out from us, they, 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 they let them know. We did not send them. They're not under our authority. And it gives such joy and peace as it lets them know, no, you don't have to be circumcised. It's not about following the law of Moses. It's confirming that they're saved 
simply by uh, 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 grace and faith. And so those men are sent out. And one thing that I wonder, I'm just curious if this would have been comforting immediately with the letter because it calls them brethren. They start off calling them brethren immediately in the letter when it's written there. And uh, that already confirming that they are saved right, right there by the apostles who are Jewish, writing to the, these Gentile churches and, and saying, brethren. <clears throat> Again, in the letter, it goes over what took place in the commerce. They let them know what they need to do. And what it causes all of a sudden is them to rejoice. They told them in the letter how we knew that you were troubled, how we knew that your souls were subverted. How they knew that this caused doubt. And the letter, by the way, when it says that the multitudes gathered there, when it deals with the multitudes, it's a very interesting word that used there. It means whole. Whole. In other words, what I believe the Lord is telling us is they all were there. Everyone was present. I mean, they were waiting to hear back from what took place in Jerusalem. So everyone is present here. They wanted to hear this. They wanted to know. They have been troubled. They have been distressed. Now, let me dive in into the message here. First off, their response. Now, in our text, it says in verse number 24 that someone out from us have troubled you with words subverting your souls. Let me talk about this just for a minute. The word troubled here is different than one that was used earlier in chapter 15. It was around verse 19 or so. Verse 19 is a fairly light word. It means to annoy. That's what it means, simply to annoy. But the word they used here is very strong. It means deeply upset, to deeply disturb, to perplex, to create fear. And certainly they knew doubt did all those things. Doubt of their salvation created a a, a perplexity about them. It created a fear that was taking place. It truly did trouble them. It says it subverted their souls which basically means robbed. It refers to a village being plundered, uh, whether it's by military action or, or just by thieves and robbers. The gathering of the goods and stealing them. So when he says here, we know that your souls have been subverted. Their souls were robbed. Their souls were robbed of joy, of assurance, of certainty, which they thought they had. You know, they thought they had salvation, but now they're no longer sure. But then all of a sudden, the men arrive. I'm sure they can tell by the faces of Paul and Barnabas. Listen, get everybody together. We're going to read the letter first. You got Silas there. You know, you've got these two other men here. I'm coming in from Jerusalem that are there. Judas and Silas, they're right there. They're present. Everybody gathers, and then they read the letter. No, you don't have to follow the law. No, you don't have to be circumcised. They read it. And the Bible tells us, it says, which when they, in verse 31, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. The word consolation simply means comfort. It's actually one of the same words used in the Bible to describe, the same root word used to describe the Holy Spirit as our comforter. It's the same word. They had great comfort when they heard it. They heard this and they were comforted. They had been waiting. They had been wondering. 
They have the uncertainty. And now, with this letter, they have the assurance that they need. They begin to rejoice. It's settled. It's done. They now knew, without a doubt, that the most important thing in all of life, as a matter of fact, nothing can compare to this knowledge. Nothing. There's nothing more important. Not even the spouse that you're going to choose. There's nothing more important than knowing whether you are truly saved or not. It, nothing. There's nothing. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing. I mean, let's say you do find the right person and you marry him and you have a great family. You go through life, but you are apart from Christ. This is what's most important. And you die and you split hell wide open and you are there for an eternity. That's not a game. This is what's most important. And they, they realized these were pagans. They were steeped in idolatry. They heard truth for the first time when, when they were hearing Paul preach and Barnabas preach there in Antioch. Remember, Barnabas went and got Paul as we went through this. It became the church. What God did there was tremendous. For the first couple of years, Paul and Barnabas were the pastors. Multitudes coming to know Christ. The church exploded. Think of that. You're a pagan. You know. I, I dealt with it when we went through when the, when the church at Antioch was being established and growing. I, I tried to. I said, get, just imagine this. You're a 35-year-old man. Maybe you have a decent education for the time. You're hearing all of a sudden this man named Paul preach. And you already know. When you're worshiping these ridiculous idols. What are we doing? I believe that. How could you not? Because your neighbor made the idol. You know, you were down at his shop when he makes the idols. You were there and he made it. And now we're being told this is God. You've had doubts all along. This just can't be true. You go along with it because it's culture. It's what you do. But all of a sudden, you have two things that take place. You have a genuine man of God who's preaching. On top of that, you have God himself through his Holy Spirit that's grabbing hold of your heart. And you hear the preaching. And you know. No, this is, this makes sense. This is true. I mean, I remember when I heard the gospel coming out of Catholicism. I'm like, no, this makes sense. This is true. So they're coming out of this paganism. And they found out what life was all about. On top of that, all their sins have been forgiven. They're justified. Wow. Then the doubt comes in. Now you have been from looking, appearing to be, they, were, they certainly did attend the church at Jerusalem. All right, we know that. But they came as if they have the authority of the apostles. And saying, wait, wait, no, no. You didn't hear everything you needed to hear yet. There's more to this than just repentance and faith in Christ. How many churches today use that exact same thing? That's not it. There's more to it. The devil uses this same lie. He's been using it for 2,000 years and getting people to add to salvation. They'll say, yes, Christ died for your sins. The Judaizers didn't deny that. They said Christ died for your sins, but it wasn't quite enough. There's something else you have to do. Listen, if you are trusting in anything else added to Christ, you are not converted. It is in Christ alone. The texts are here. They're, they've been in New Guinea much longer than the 12 years I was there. But when I was there, 
that was the biggest thing they had to get through, was the fact that they all knew Christ died for their sins, but that wasn't the only thing they were trusting in. <clears throat> and so now, here comes Paul, but they come back and they hear it and they just begin to rejoice. It's true. We have truth. Our sins are forgiven. Eternity is settled. It's settled for them. They're saved. Their sins forgiven. They've escaped the judgment and condemnation of Almighty God. But think what a tumultuous time for them before they arrived. Again, the truth is doubt can be so crippling. It truly can subvert your soul. Stealing joy. Stealing certainty. Stealing how God could be using you in those moments, in those weeks, in those months, in those years. It can trouble you. And it is an assurance that there is a measure of joy and comfort. So there is danger and doubt. I would imagine the majority of us in here have had a time when we have doubted. But there's danger in it. Doubt will trouble you. It can prevent you from a full surrender of your place. The devil uses it for a lot of different ways. But if he, he can get a converted person to genuinely doubt, that will prevent a measure of full surrender in your life. It will. It'll stop it. Because you, you just don't know. It begins to steal from your soul, as we see in our text, make you anxious, unsettled, the roller coaster ride. Doubt can also begin to consume your spiritual life. I know as a pastor, that's a significant part of counseling. What leads to doubt? What, what are the different avenues that Satan uses to produce doubt, or even our own flesh? Well, in our text, we see one primary thing that is used often. That is wrong theology. False doctrine had come in. Ignorance. Again, this is the problem at what happened at the church at Antioch. Wrong theology. These false doctrine had come in. They lacked a genuine understanding of how salvation worked. And keep in mind, they were at a disadvantage over us. They're going to receive the first epistle written. They didn't have the book of Ephesians, the book of Philippians. They don't have one of the Gospels. None of it. We do. So a lack of understanding. Wrong doctrine. I, remember, I can think of different examples in my own life. One that applied to me. One, one I knew that applied to others that I knew well. There was a revival out in Palmer in the early 90s. And during one of the services... I remember afterwards talking with several people that I knew that was there that had struggled with doubt immediately because the fellow preaching had preached a false doctrine concerning salvation that caused a lot of doubt. He had got into how you have to pray through. Pray through. It could take all night. It could take days. It could take weeks. But you've got to pray through. You pray through until the Holy Ghost hits you. Well, in the culture he grew up in, that was common, how they said things and did things. But everybody under that tent, probably, that is there, that goes back to the first thing, that didn't happen to me. 
I heard the gospel, repented, put my faith in Christ. There was no this, you know, hours on my face before God. And it caused doubt. When I was at my very first duty assignment. Now, so when I had started serving Christ, you've heard the story before, the first church that, that, I, that I got saved in and began to grow in, though. There was very little growing take place coming, I'm not being mean, coming from the pulpit or anything like that. Remember the church without a pastor for several years, then, you know, I certainly got excited and surrendered my life under it to serve God. But there, there was, they didn't understand what version to use. It certainly wasn't a King James church, it was not Texas Receptus. Um, there was, there was, it was, in many ways, it had a lot of different trials and struggles. And so, now I've been growing. I've been in the Word of God. I'm starting to grow, but I'm in the Air Force. I get married. I head to my, uh, my very first duty assignment, and I'm at Holloman Air Force Base. And I come across a man who's, I think he's still there to this day. He was re- he had a fairly recent retiree from the Air Force and was there working as a civilian now. And we still stay in a little bit of contact. It's been a couple years since I've contacted him, but his name was Mr. Hughes. And Mr. Hughes was a UPC, was United Pentecostal. Now, if you know what, you, 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 United Pentecostal is different than your standard Pentecostal. They have horrible doctrine. Now, I didn't know that. I didn't know what a UPC was when I met the guy. But all I knew since the first time that I had been converted, I have a man telling me I'm lost on my way to hell. I've never been told that yet since I've been saved. And, and he gave me the list of reasons why I'm on my way to hell. I was not baptized in Jesus' name. I've never spoken in tongues. I mean, he had a list. I've never spoken in tongues. I mean, he had, a, he had a nice little list. And that, of course, created all of a sudden here. And I'm like, that, that's a measure of uncertainty. That caused me, of course, to dive into. The guy did more to help my theology than any, than any Bible college class ever did. Because literally, from the first day I met him, we had our first theological discussion. I was diving into the Word of God when I got back. Okay, is there any merit to what he's saying? Is there anything here? I just wanted to know. I mean, I knew what it was like to be deceived already in the Catholic Church. And then, only thing it did is I got into the Word of God. It's different than being in the Catholic Church. It strengthened everything I did. I realized, no, no. It's just by faith and grace. That's all it is. Just by faith and grace. But nonetheless, that false doctrine created doubt. It does that. But that's not all that creates doubt in our life. There's other things the devil tends to use. Let me give you a couple of more. Guilt. Guilt. Even Christians, some have trouble accepting forgiveness. Sometimes Christians have more trouble than others because we can realize what Christ did for us. And then we fail. So we all have a conscience. The conscience knows to do one thing to you. And it's a good thing. The, our culture likes to tell you this is a bad thing. It, it, it's, it's a good thing, though. Your conscience is there to give you guilt. Your conscience knows no mercy. It does not. It's not there for mercy. It's there to convict. It's there to help you in life. And yes, when you're converted, you have God's Holy Spirit working in conjunction with your conscience. There's conviction. You get under Bible preaching and all of a sudden you're like, oh, conviction can hit. 
the devil can come right around, or even your own flesh can come right around and start to use that as a measure of doubt. Do you understand that when you have guilt from your sin, that's a sign of conversion? When you have guilt and you want to turn from your sin and, 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 and you're going the other direction, that's a sign of conversion. Those who need to doubt are those who can stay in sin and it doesn't bother them at all. They need to doubt. They need to doubt. But many times guilt comes in and, and it just gets a hold of your mind and it, it begins to plague on your salvation. Temptation is another one. Let me explain this one. Well, how does temptation lead to doubt? There are those, and, and this can come into some, maybe not false doctrine, but maybe lack of understanding the Scripture, as well as the guilt too. And I'll, I'll, I'll try and get more to that here in a minute. But sometimes the constant battle of the flesh leads people to doubt. I've dealt with that on many occasions. It's just where they don't understand. It's almost as if they think when they got saved, that should disappear. Your flesh is still there. The, the desire for your flesh to sin hasn't changed. It's still there. It's still present. Romans chapter 7 is clear. The greatest Christian who ever lived dealt with the struggle within. The good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, that I do. There's a genuine struggle that's part of it. Don't, don't put an expectation on yourself at conversion for what will happen when you actually have a glorified body in heaven. But there are those who struggle with, with just, just the fact that they're constantly bad in the flesh. Yes. Why do you think uh, um, the Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, 31? I die daily. Do you know what he had every day? A battle of the flesh. And he says, but I'm going to die daily. Lastly, another thing that's common. There's more. This isn't exhaustive, but these are the common ones. The fourth one here. Especially in the day we live in. This happened in Europe, and, and it's happening more in the States. Intellectual doubts. This comes from someone basically challenging your faith in God and in the Bible. Now, understand this. Please listen to this. Especially, uh, you know, younger gen. I don't know what, really anybody. There's a form of manipulation that takes place with this that you, you need to understand that plagues on your mind. All right? Many times it's nothing of substance whatsoever. It's just how it's presented in a form of ridicule. All right? It's not that, it's, it's not that there's any truth that you're hearing or knowledge. It's just, you believe that? Are you kidding me? Come on. How can you possibly believe that? Notice, there's nothing substantial about what is being said. But none of us like to be ridiculed. Wait, am I stupid? And so, with the intellectual doubts, that's how that comes about right now. I remember, again, you've heard me tell this story before. I just started serving the Lord. I'm just growing. I'm in 10th grade. I started the year off, and I'm... You know, so excited about my faith in Christ. And really, and of course, I'm in public school. Not in a Christian home, anything. But, and then, of course, remember, I told us, I'm not going to know all the details, details of that, but I got convicted to bring my Bible to school and everything that went with that. And how I brought the tiny Bible first. 
And then I got convicted that next morning on reading, reading my, uh, doing my devotions. That wasn't what I meant, uh, my mind is thinking. And so I, I went ahead and brought a regular Bible with me. So let's fast forward a couple weeks. I'm in science class in public school. Probably 30, 35 of my classmates in there with me. Tenth grade. You know, when you're in tenth grade in high school, in our high school, that was the first year you entered the main high school. The freshmen, they kept separate. You had seventh, sixth, seventh, and eighth in one school, ninth grade in one school, then 10, 11, and 12th in their own school. So I'm grade 10. It's my first few weeks in the true high school. So there's, there's, there's the desires any teacher to fit in, to want to be liked, all that. So the, the science teacher is, I can't remember which science it was at the time. There's different sciences. I can't remember which one it was now. But he's, he's lecturing going back and forth. I'm about the second or third row over, almost near the back, like the second or third desk up. My Bible's on my desk. It's right there. I'm listening. He's lecturing. And, uh, and he stops. And he's just looking at me. And then he says, is that a Bible on your desk? Oh, my goodness. I wanted to crawl underneath my desk. I did. I mean, I could feel the redness hit me at the time. I felt just humiliated. And boy, did he go off on it. Just like I said, almost word for word. You actually believe that? And he mocked it. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I just wanted, I could argue, at this point in time, I had very little. I'm just beginning to grow. Very little Bible knowledge. And no, I don't think it's coincidence at all. At all. I don't. I'm not, I'm not being mean. I'm just saying just from even what I read in Scripture. I mean, it was from that emotional standpoint with what he took place. It was brutal. He was he's in his 30s, I believe. He was dead before the school year was out. He only taught a couple more weeks. He was standing out in front of the front door. He dropped down, passed out, rushed to the hospital, had a cancer. I think it was brain tumor, if I remember right. Came back to school one more time in a wheelchair and then had died. He believes just like I do right now. Now, I hope he got saved. I hope he heard it. That's very, I, hope, I hope somebody got a hold of him and his atheistic viewpoint and got saved. But there are times in our culture right now that, in a, that this intellectualism that exists today, this, our, our, our culture that is going so humanistic and so secular, and the mocking that takes place. The irony of it is this. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I mean, please just think about it. You have to be a complete fool to deny a creator. Complete fool. Nothing created all this? Really. Nothing created all this. You see, there's some honest atheist, if you will. And they, those ones really aren't. I don't know if y'all saw the interview. It's fascinating. The interview where, who's the guy that wrote the book, The God Delusion? Uh, I can't remember his name now. Anyhow, he's, he's, at one of the, he's from England. He's one of the most famous atheists and loves to mock Christians. But he was in an interview being asked about the origins then. Since there is no God, he's convinced, well, then how did nothing, how do we get here from nothing? And to listen to his responses were truly ludicrous. Ludicrous, out there. It was absurd. But the truth is, true, I, I, and I'll go to their form. I've done it several years now, but I used to go to their forums. I want to read, I, I wanted to read what, what, you know, how could they possibly 
and I was in one. Oh, it was fast. And these guys are high-level education that I'm reading their material back and forth, back and forth. Master's degrees and their doctorates and everything like that. And so they had a huge discussion about it. There's not one believer in there. I'm just reading it. I'm not about to spoil it by saying, hey, I'm reading all this, by the way. And they all agreed something has to be eternal. That's right. Something has to be eternal. And then they went into other problems with evolution. It was fascinating. Stuff that we teach all the time. Maybe it's stuff they heard because of Christian teaching. I don't know. So they started talking about, no, we do have a problem. And they dealt with how close is either the sun or the moon and the earth are. Because if it is, you know, the billions of years old, well, we have a problem there with distance. And they were right. Something has to be eternal. It's either eternal dirt or God. It's God. You know, I remember talking with an atheist, and he had told me, we were at lunch, and he had said, he had said you know, that we know it was from the Big Bang because the same material that, that, that when we break down and we decompose, we find in the stars. And I say, no, what that speaks of, the same one who created the star created you. I said, that's like all of a sudden you go, you, you, you find a, uh, a, um, a, a Ford uh, what's, Focus and you think an F-350 exploded and formed a Focus. No, it was the same guy working at the factory that made both of them. The same God that made the universe made us. It's not that hard. You don't ignore these, by the way. You don't. Listen, you do not have to... Our faith does not require us to check our brains at the door by any means. We have a most reasonable faith. Again, only those who have to check their brains at the door are those who deny a creator. Now, how can we know? Oh, boy. I need to hurry up. I got stuck on that one a lot longer than I planned on. And my notes, that's only three sentences, just so you know, all right? <laughs> but I, I, I do want to cover this because there could, people, there could be people struggling with doubts. And, and this we need to get to. Maybe it's been temptation. Maybe it's been guilt. Maybe it's been a false doctrine. Um, you know, maybe it's been intellectual doubts. How do we know? We do know this, according to 1 John 5, 13. God wants you certain. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I mean, think of all that comes, comes with it when you do know. And I, well, let me not get ahead of myself. Let me get, give you some things that you go through. Because many times when a person is doubting, they simply go to the wrong thing to try and gain assurance from. One, you always look at what your faith is in. Is your faith only in Christ Jesus? And don't make that more complicated or overthink it. All right? The thief on the cross did not have to go through a Ph.D. to put his faith in Christ. All right? Don't overthink it. You simply be honest with yourself, knowing faith is in Christ alone. 
Is there an actual conviction from God because you have mixed it with something else? Are you believing that you also have to be a good person, get baptized, um, anything else that you've added to it? Well, then the Holy Spirit's going to convict you because you need conversion. But if there was a time, no, I heard the gospel and I simply placed my faith in Christ. That's called salvation. Second thing you look at scripturally. These things are, uh, again, what we look at from a scriptural point of view. The Bible points to different evidence of conversion in our life. Matter of fact, the, first, the book of 1 John stresses this. You can get into 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, verse 24, chapter 5, verse 3. In other words, here's one of the marks of a convert. Obedience. 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 That's a mark of somebody who's been converted. Again, so you're going to, did you, notice I'm not saying did you say certain words. I'm saying, did you hear the gospel clearly? And you knew, yes, I made the decision to place my faith in Christ alone. Then, is there obedience in your life? Is there a desire to follow God's commands? Know what it says in First John? It brings up an important point. God's commands to you are not grievous. If you look at God's commands as grievous, there's something wrong. That's Bible. That's First John. You have a desire for righteousness. It's not that you're perfect. It's not that your flesh isn't there, but all of a sudden there's a desire. It's, it's real. It's genuine. Again, one of the biggest reasons I believe we use our, our, uh, lose our teenagers is because they were never converted. We had, we had them saying a few words when they were four or five and six years old. Yet there was never no genuine conversion. And then as a teenager, as they're becoming an adult, they're trying to live the Christian life thinking they're saved without God's indwelling Holy Spirit, struggling with understanding of Scripture. You see, how did that happen? Because we have men walking in a Sunday school class saying, who would like to go to heaven today? Who's going to say no to that? Pray with me. Dear Lord, come into my heart. Dear Lord, come into my heart. And now we tell them they're saved and we baptize them. And then we can write the sword of the Lord and say, look what we did. And then those same people turn 14. Struggles start to begin. 15. It gets worse. 16. Rebellion begins to manifest itself. 17, the struggle is real. The parents don't understand. It's not that you're dealing with a prodigal. You're dealing with somebody who was never converted. A converted person, according to the Scripture, and I believe that every single time, has a desire for obedience. If there's no desire for obedience, there's no conversion. Doesn't mean you're going to fall all the time. You're going to fail at it. Over and over. Over and over. We also know from the Bible, another thing to look at is love, especially towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. There should be that affection there as family for each other. If you consider and just disdain everybody, something's wrong. Something's really wrong.
I'm going to finish with 17 things. Just kidding. Uh, let me finish with this. I'll give these very quickly. I want to, I want to give why it is important to know, to know, to know that you are safe. One is going to produce gratitude. Don't underestimate the motivating influence that gratitude is. Let me give you an example. Let's think of Mary when she broke the perfume. How expensive that was. That was out of gratitude. She knew who she was and that he saved her. She was willing to sacrifice whatever it took out of gratitude. When you know that you are saved, what God did for you, of where you would be without him, not just here with a broken family and all that stuff, heading towards, like we looked at Wednesday, hell. Being separated from God for eternity. There's also comfort as we see in, in Acts. There's a measure of comfort with it. It gives peace knowing it's settled. It gives peace knowing my sins are forgiven. Many like to seek for this comfort that I, I believe is a basic human need that people always seek, seek after. They seek after money and pleasure. That's why they're always up and down. Because that's never going to truly satisfy. It'll never actually meet that need. Those things will create more stress and problems in your life than anything else. It'll also help you to live, I'm trying to phrase this right, above the world, if you will. It helps you to see yourself more as a stranger and a pilgrim on this earth. So as lastly here, what you do is, you stay committed, surrendered. It helps lead to that surrender, committed life to Christ. I, and let me give you a, a, an example of that, what I mean. Go, let's go back to 2000 and early 2001 when I was struggling. With, the church did not know at that time, if you, if you remember, those who were still here, they went back when I was assistant pastor, with the call to New Guinea. When I was, had doubts and uncertainty as to the direction of the Lord and praying about it every day, know what I had trouble being? Committed to either. Committed to either. It was, a, it was consuming my prayer life, everything. I had to get a measure of certainty. So when you have that assurance of salvation, it's stuff that you know that that's settled you belong to Him. It helps that, that committed, that surrendered life. It allows you to produce that desire to truly and genuinely live for God. Now we have other battles that come in that try and attack us. But Satan uses this element of doubt in a great way. Remember, Satan had to get the church in Antioch. That church was powerful. The influence they were having was incredible. And in, what is it, Cilicia there, those other churches mentioned, by the way, they were going to send this letter to as well. Remember how those got started, by the way. That actually wasn't from the church at Antioch. That was from Paul before Barnabas got him. That was from Paul before. In those years that Paul was basically by himself, that's the region we know from Scripture he was in. They send these letters. When they hear it, they know. They're rejoicing. Listen, God wants you to know, with heads bowed and eyes closed.